Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series in the book of Exodus with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be discussing Moses and Pharaoh and God's dismantling of the Egyptian world. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes. We'd specifically love if you'd subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are next week concluding our series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart, and we think you'll find that very useful. There's also a past series there on reading the Bible, the furniture of creation, and highlights from different lectures. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan on the book of Exodus, discussing Moses and Pharaoh. We come now to the ten great plagues, the great miraculous works of God, by which he destroyed the Egyptians and made possible the deliverance of his people. And by way of preliminary remarks, the very first of these plagues involves the turning of the Red Sea to blood. And that blood is related to the boy babies that were thrown into the Red Sea 80 years earlier. And it was the murder of those children that defiled the land and called up the avenger of blood. And when the Red Sea is, excuse me, when the Nile River is turned to blood, then that has the effect of calling up the avenger of blood. In the biblical law and in the system, blood that spilled out in the land cries out for vengeance. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, when the blood of Abel cried out to God for vengeance against Cain. God has said, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And similarly, all this blood that spilled out on Egypt calls forth for the avenger of blood, calls forth for God to come and make matters right, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and death for death. And the climax of the plagues then is Passover, when the firstborn sons of Egypt are put to death. And it's child for child, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The blood is avenged by the Egyptian children. So that is sort of the framework of the plagues. And the first observation we want to make is that they all have to do with God acting as an angel of death and avenging his family. The second observation I want to make is that these plagues come in the form of a threat to unravel the Egyptian world. The social cosmos is parallel to the physical cosmos in Scripture. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have the building up of the world, and principally in terms of three zones, the heavens above, the earth beneath, and the waters under the earth. And then, of course, there are waters above the highest heavens. Well, these plagues take the same structure. The three zones of heaven above, earth beneath, and waters under the earth are found in the plagues. The plagues come in cycles, and when we get to them, we'll look at the three cycles, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And when we get to them, we'll notice that the first plague in each of the cycles is a plague having to do with water. In the first two, a plague comes out of the water. In the last cycle, the water comes from above. The middle in each one has to do with the earth, some type of a defilement of the earth, the land, and the third plague in each cycle has to do with the atmosphere and with men. Men are those who are positioned in the heavens as the image of God ruling over the rest of the world. 
and the last plague in each cycle has to do with the atmosphere and is a particular plague against men. So the image of decreating or unraveling the cosmic order set up in Genesis 1 is prominent in the structuring of the plagues, and we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. A third observation is that these plagues are against the gods and magicians of Egypt. God says, against the gods of Egypt will I execute my judgment, and so he does. It's not necessarily easy or possible to identify each one of these plagues in terms of some particular god. But the two main gods of the Egyptians were the Nile and the sun. It was the intermarriage of the Nile and the sun that gave birth to everything in the world anyway. And the first plague defiles the Nile River, and the ninth plague, the last one in the cycles before we get to Passover, is against the sun. The sun is darkened, and the world is made dark for three days. And the agents of these gods are the magicians of Egypt, and the magicians are defeated and driven out as we go through the cycles. At the end of the first cycle, the magicians are unable to duplicate Moses' miracles and are defeated. And at the end of the sixth plague, at the end of the second cycle, the sixth plague, the magicians are actually driven out from Moses' presence. So the gods of Egypt are defeated in that way. So now if you look in your notes, you'll find the first cycle of plagues. Let's look at the first cycle of plagues. Looking at your chart for the first cycle of plagues, in these three plagues, Aaron's rod is used each time. Aaron takes his staff and works with it. And that's because, according to chapter 7, verse 1, Aaron is Moses' prophet. And as you read here, his judgments are mild, and they basically warn the people. These plagues aren't very severe against the people. The river turns to blood, but they can dig water around and find it. Frogs come up and make things unpleasant. Gnats bite people and make things unpleasant. But other than, you know, tremendous unpleasantness and irritation and headaches, that's the extent of these first three plagues, but they're warnings, warnings that if they don't repent, things will get worse. In these first three plagues, the land of Goshen is included, and that seems to mean that all men are subject to judgment for sin. As I mentioned, these are miraculous warning signs from God, and they attack the comfort of men, but not his property and not his life. Insofar as these judgments come from human spokesmen, and not from God, they come up from the ground and not from heaven. It'll be different with cycle three. Cycle three, the plagues come from God, symbolized by the staff of God, and they come down from heaven and are particularly brought from God in that direction. And the climax of this first cycle is the defeat of the magicians. So let's look at the first plague, where the river turns to blood. In verse 15 of chapter 7, Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going to the water. The first plague in each cycle begins with this, going to Pharaoh in the morning and telling him about what's going to happen. The idea of the morning seems to be of a day of judgment. At any rate, we only read this in the first of each cycle, and it seems to be a cycle marker. So we start a cycle here, the first cycle of three plagues. It says, You shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. So that's Moses' rod. 
And you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened till now, thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that's in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron... The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers and over their streams and over their pools, over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So, Moses' rod initiates the whole cycle of judgments, but Aaron's rod acts in the first three, indicating the human being carrying out the judgment. And this is merciful because it puts distance between Pharaoh and God and preserves him from the wrath of God by using intermediaries. Well, it says that Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff, this is Aaron's, and struck the water in the Nile on the side of Pharaoh. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died. And the Nile became foul. Blood was through all the land of Egypt. The magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. Isn't that wonderful? What little water was left, the Egyptians turned to blood. So there wasn't any left at all. (laughs) So all the magicians can do is make things worse. They can't undo the plague. All they can do is imitate it. There's tremendous humor and irony here. What good are these magicians? But Pharaoh turned and went into his house and didn't repent. So the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink and could not drink of the waters of the Nile. And seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Well, this is a judgment against water. The first plague in each cycle involves water, and here the water itself is judged and becomes foul. The Egyptian water is no good. It's also, as we noted, a judgment against the Nile god, one of Egypt's two fundamental deities. And finally, the blood is associated with the babies who had been killed two generations earlier and calls up the avenger of blood, as we'll see in plague number ten. The second plague will have to do with the land primarily. We read in chapter 8, verse 1, Thus the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. The second plague in each cycle, there is a warning, but it's not in the morning. It just says, Go to Pharaoh. He may have gone in the morning, but all he was told to do is go. And that's the marker for the second in each cycle. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I'll smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and on your people, into your ovens, into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. And so the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers and over the streams and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Then the magicians did the same with their secret art, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Well, there's an emphasis on the land here and the judgment comes up from the water, but it defiles the land. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and asked that the frogs be removed. And Moses said, you tell us when you want it done. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. And Moses said, all right, so you'll know that there's no one like our Lord. The frogs will depart from you and your houses. 
So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out of their houses, courts, and fields. And they piled them up in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them. Well, this is primarily against the land. The land becomes foul just as the water became foul in the first plague. And beyond that, the way the language piles up in verse 3, the frogs will be in your house, in your bedroom, in your bowls, in your ovens. This is a symbol of demonic inhabitation. Frogs are symbols for demons in Revelation 16:13, And frogs and lizards and reptiles are symbols for uncleanness being inside of the man in Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11 is a comparison of men to clay vessels and if a rat or a lizard falls inside of one and dies and the vessel has to be broken or scoured out. And that type of symbolism is involved here. These frogs being inside of their environments speaks of the demonic oppression that comes upon the land and a defilement and uncleanness that's there. So the second plague defiles the land. The third plague has to do with the atmosphere. It says in verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, and there's no warning to Pharaoh, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through the land of Egypt. And so they did. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, so the magicians are defeated, and they admit that this is beyond them. They can't do it. The idea here is that dust is turned into gnats, and dust is cursed. It's a living curse on men that we see here. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And here the ground becomes alive and moves up into the atmosphere. So we've had water, land, and now the atmosphere. And it's particularly a judgment against men and beasts. These are a physical affliction that can be felt by the human skin. And so it's a judgment against men. And as we noted, men are positioned over the world and thus in some sense always are spoken of as seated in the heavenlies one way or the other. And this plague in the atmosphere is particularly against men. And this is the climax of the first three. And it shows that God can put forth his finger and destroy the land. He can destroy the water. He can destroy human life. And yet Pharaoh does not repent. Let's look then at the second cycle of plagues. In the second cycle, we find that Moses speaks to Pharaoh. But there's nothing said about any rod or staff. It seems that Aaron is no longer acting as an intermediary, but Moses himself is talking to Pharaoh. And this is an advance. The grace of having a prophet speak to you instead of confronting the Lord himself is now gone. Aaron was Moses' prophet, but Moses is God's prophet, and so judgment is drawing nearer. Moses' judgments are much more severe. In these plagues, cycle two and three, Goshen is excluded. God sets his people apart in anticipation of the redemption to come. It's rather like in the Old Testament, even before the death of Jesus Christ, God's people were set apart. Now, these are much severer signs, although they're still merciful. Pharaoh can still repent, and Egypt is not destroyed. There is an attack against property, and a lot of property is lost. 
and the plague that attacks the human skin in this cycle will be much more severe. But it's still not death. Once again, the judgments come from human spokesmen and not directly from God. They come from men and their prophets, and so the judgments come up from below rather than down from above. And the climax of this cycle is that the magicians are driven out. They're not only defeated, but this time they're driven out. The fourth plague has to do with swarms of insects. And here again, the cycle marker is, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. And that's important because it seems to set the water as the context. The judgment arises from the water and lays waste the land. These insects seem to be seen as being spawned in the water and then coming out. At any rate, God says, If you will not let my people go, behold, I'll send swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of insects, also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living, that no swarms of insects will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people, and tomorrow this will happen. So the Lord did. And there were great swarms of insects come into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and it says, The land was laid waste. So what came up out of the water laid waste the land. Now this time Pharaoh starts to repent a little bit. He called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. In other words, where I have control over it and not where your God has control over it. It's okay if you just do a little religious ritual to whatever God this is you want to talk to, but do it under my control. But Moses refuses. He says, It's not right to do so, for we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. Some of the sacrificial animals were sacred to the Egyptians, and the Jews intended to sacrifice them. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh says, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only don't go very far away and pray for me. And Moses said, Well, all right, I'm going to go out from you and I'll pray to the Lord that the swarms of insects may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. But, of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart after the insects disappeared and did not let the people go. So the swarms of insects came out of the water and were again a sign that the world is in revolt against the wicked. Well, the second plague in the cycle has to do with the land primarily. And this time the cycle marker is go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse, let them go. Behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock that are in the field. Horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did it on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. It wasn't actually all of it. Some of it dies again later on. But all here means a tremendous amount, all so to speak. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Well, 
the judgment here is against the beasts who dwell on the land. These are the ones that were made on the sixth day and who dwell on the land. And here the judgment then is primarily in terms of the land and its inhabitants. Well, what will come next will be a judgment against human beings primarily, and it will be atmospheric in nature, and that's what we find with plague number six. There's no warning. We just read in verse 8 that the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Well, the magicians received the boils, and they could not stand before Moses, and they're driven out. Here we have, just as dust became gnats, it's important to see that soot is what causes the sores and boils. The judgment is against men and beasts, but it's basically atmospheric, like the gnats and like the palpable darkness of the ninth plague. One thing to note is that the soot came from the kilns where the Israelites made the bricks. And the irony here is that the meaning is that the enslavement of the Hebrews would become a curse to the Egyptians. The Hebrews worked on these kilns and made bricks, and now the side effect of that is the soot. And the side effect of enslaving Israel would be the destruction of Egypt. Another thing to notice is that soot, of course, is black, and making the atmosphere black even just for a few minutes with soot corresponds to the ninth plague. And what happens after the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, is that all the Egyptians are warned that if they'll stay in their houses and put blood on their doorpost, they'll be spared the tenth plague. And what we find here is that the seventh plague that follows after the sixth, you have the same kind of warning that if they will put their livestock inside, they will be spared from the hail that's going to fall from heaven. This order of having a plague of darkness and then a warning is prophetic. The people who lived through the sixth and the seventh plagues and saw that God meant business, when they got around to the ninth plague and felt the darkness and then the warning came for the tenth plague, they could have learned from that and learned that God meant business. And so there's mercy in this and the way it's structured for those who were willing to hear and heed. We come then to the third cycle. And the third cycle is the judgment of God. Here Moses' rod is used, what is called the rod of God. And it seems to be a symbol of God's own direct power. And Moses, when he stretches out his hand, will be stretching out this rod, the hand of God himself. And because they're God's judgments, they will utterly destroy the Egyptian society and economy. In chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. And then it says in verse 13, So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. So the stretching out of the hand implies that since the rod is in the hand, the rod is also stretched out, and it's the rod of God and God's own judgment that brings these things to pass. These are no longer signs. They are the thorough destruction of Egypt. 
And since these judgments come from God, now instead of coming up from below, they come down from above. Instead of striking the dust and having it turn up gnats or taking soot and throwing it up in the sky, this time we have darkness falling from above and the extinguishing of the sun. Instead of the waters of the Nile or frogs coming up out of the Nile or flies coming up out of the Nile, this time we have hail, water showering down from above. Instead of some disease just moving through the land, again from the effects of the previous plagues and all the dead bodies, this time we have locusts being brought in by the wind of God from the east. And so the idea this time is that God is pouring out judgments on the land. They come from God and fall from above. The climax is that Moses is driven out. In fact, magicians were driven out. Now Moses is driven from Pharaoh's presence. And that is Pharaoh rejecting his last opportunity to repent. He rejects his last opportunity to repent. The seventh plague is the plague of hailstorm. Verse 13, we have the beginning of the third cycle. Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. And then we get the warning, let my people go. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this cause I allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So in other words, the first six plagues were merciful, God showing his power. But Pharaoh didn't respond and repent, and so now God is going to put forth his hand. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Now therefore send and bring your livestock and whatever you have in your field to safety. See, there's the warning, same kind of warning that will come in connection with the tenth plague. Every man and beast that's found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. Now the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of God left his servants and his livestock in the field. And so Moses stretches out his hand, and by implication the rod of God. It says in verse 23, Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail. And fire ran down to the earth. Everything comes out from the heavens. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, fire flashing continuously. And hail struck all that was in the field through the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck every plant of the ground and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I've sinned this time. Does that imply that he hadn't sinned the other times? The Lord is the righteous one, and we're the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. And I will let you go, and you will stay no longer. Moses said, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now we're given information here that flax and barley were ruined, for barley was in the ear and flax was in the bud. But wheat and spelt were not ruined, for they ripen later on. Now the locusts will take care of them the next plague. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread his hands to the Lord, and the thunder ceased. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail had ceased, he hardened his heart. 
and he didn't let the sons of Israel go. The eighth plague is the plague of locusts. It's the second in the cycle, and it has primarily to do with the land in terms of its phrasing. The previous plague had to do with water, water turning to hail and falling from above. This one will have to do primarily with the land. Uh, again, the marker is not go to Pharaoh in the morning, but just go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I perform these signs of mine among them. And so Moses and Aaron go to the Pharaoh, and they tell him that locusts are going to come. Verse 5. They will cover the surface of the land, literally the eye of the land, so that no one will be able to see the land. Kind of a pun there. They will eat the rest of what has escaped, what's left you from the hail. Your houses will be filled with locusts, all the houses of your servants and houses of all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor grandfathers have seen from the day they came upon the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So there's a similarity here to the way the frogs filled their houses. And again, the idea is of a defilement that comes and fills up. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the man go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt is being destroyed? Now we have a legal argument. And we're back to the legality of the Exodus here. Verses 8 and following, very important. Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go and serve the Lord your God. That means go and become his slave. You don't have to be my slave. You go become God's slave. You go ahead and become his slave. I'll, I'll grant that you can go. And then he says, who are the ones who are going along? And Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, because we must hold a feast to the Lord. And Pharaoh said, no way. Thus the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that's what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now, what's the argument here? To understand it, we have to look over in Exodus 21, where these laws are given. The very first laws that are given are the laws concerning slaves, because they've been so important in the Exodus itself. In chapter 21 of Exodus, it says, verse 2, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he will go out as a free man without payment. So... They've served for a hundred years, and now they're to go free. It says, if he comes alone, he goes out alone. If he has a husband of a wife, then his wife will go with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he will go out alone. Now, that's what Pharaoh was insisting on. Pharaoh says, your wives and your children are mine. I gave you these wives and children because I was your master. So if you men want to go, fine. But I'm going to keep the wives and children because they're mine, and we'll just give them out to the Egyptian men and raise up another crop of Hebrew slaves. Or else Pharaoh may think that he'll hold them hostage, so the men will have to come back. But that's not true, because when the Jews came down into Egypt, their women came with them. And so, in reality, it was the case that the husband came with the wife, and the wife and the children need to go out with him. And that's what the argument is here. Moses says, no, our wives and our children and our property go with us because we brought them down here to Egypt in the first place. And Pharaoh is saying, no, I'm your master. I gave you the wives, and the children belong to me. Well, Pharaoh is obviously wrong, and he's acting illegally. But you see, this is a legal argument here. 
And what Pharaoh is trying to do is to steal the women and the children. Let the men go. And it says they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Well, that wasn't good enough, so the plague came anyway. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locust. And Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. And the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all the night when it was morning. The east wind brought the locust. So it's the land where this takes place. It's the whole surface of the land, verse 5. And it's the east wind. The east would be where God's throne is located. If we consider the land of Palestine or the city of Jerusalem, the place of his throne. The idea seems to be that it comes from God. It's the wind, the heavenly wind that comes from God that brings these things. And the locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled in the territory of Egypt, very numerous. They covered the whole surface of the whole land. The land was dark. The sky is going to be dark next. Now the land is dark. They ate every plant of the land, fruit of the trees that the hail had left. There was nothing green anywhere. So Pharaoh hurriedly calls for Moses and Aaron, and he repents and says, I've sinned. Please forgive my sin. Make supplication to me. The Lord shifted the wind to a west wind and took the locusts up and drove them into the Red Sea. And not one locust was left in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he didn't let the sons of Israel go. I suppose I ought to comment on the fact that sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes it says the Lord hardened his heart. God is sovereign in the affairs of men. And there's a truth to the fact that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's also a truth to the fact that when we sin and don't repent, God just goes ahead and gives us over to sin, and God will let our hearts be hardened. It's the mystery of human iniquity. God chooses not to save all men and chooses to leave some men in hardness of heart. But the Lord intended to destroy Pharaoh because of Pharaoh's sins and did not grant him repentance and worked with his own heart to make it even harder. That's what the text says. Well, finally, we come to the ninth plague, the plague of darkness that you can feel, just as you felt the gnats biting your skin and just as you felt the boils on your skin, so you feel the darkness. The Lord said to Moses, and there's no warning, Stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness that may be felt. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They couldn't see each other, nor did anyone arise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord. Therefore our livestock too will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind. But we will take some of them to serve the Lord. And until we arrive there, we ourselves don't know what we'll need to serve the Lord with. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let him go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again. For the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You're right. I will never see your face again. Well, this ninth plague of palpable darkness is, again, a judgment that's particularly against men. It's felt by men. It's atmospheric in character. Again, we have water, land, and atmosphere. It's a judgment against Egypt's other primary god, which is the sun, and corresponds to the first plague. The three days of darkness preceding Passover correspond to the three hours of darkness on the cross uh, that preceded our Lord's death. 
We notice here that Pharaoh tries to negotiate again, and he's still not got the total picture. He says that they can serve the Lord and take their wives and families, but they have to leave their flocks and herds with them. Now again, that is not what God's law required. In Deuteronomy 15, looking at the laws of slaves, it says, If the Hebrew man or woman is sold and serves six years, in the seventh year you'll set him free. And Deuteronomy 15:13 says, When you set him free, you'll not send him away empty-handed, but you will furnish him liberally from flock and from threshing floor and from the wine vat, and you will give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you, and you will remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. So, the master is supposed to let them keep their stuff and also give them gifts. And Pharaoh is breaking this law. So again, Pharaoh is acting illegally. The climax of the third cycle of plagues is that Moses is driven out. Pharaoh loses his temper and he sends Moses out. Well, such are the ten plagues. And now we have one last plague. One last plague. Now we have in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, a parenthetical insertion. It says, The Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out completely. Literally, it says he will drive you out as a slave wife. That idea goes back to Sarah and Hagar. Sarah was afraid that Hagar and her son Ishmael would rise up and inherit everything that Abraham had and that was supposed to go to Isaac. And so she drove Hagar out. And similarly, the Egyptians are now becoming more and more afraid that the Hebrews are going to rise up and inherit the land of Egypt. And at this point, they're going to want them out of the land. Again, we have in verse 2 of chapter 11 that each man is to ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And these are the gifts that are given to slaves when they're set free. Now this parenthesis is in verses 1 to 3 and is background for what Moses says to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has just told him to leave and Moses says, You're right, I'll never see your face again. And in verse 4, Moses continues, Thus says the Lord about midnight, I am going into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there will be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as will never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even sharpen his tongue. That's literally what it says. When a dog licks his chops, in Hebrew he's sharpening his tongue, and the tongue is like a sword. And to be eaten up by the dogs is a sign of the curse of the covenant. And the dogs will not eat up any of the Israelites, but the dead bodies of the Egyptians will be eaten up by the wild dogs. That's the idea. Against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not sharpen his tongue. He will not eat any of them, whether man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. 
That's the end of the plague section. And now we have the Passover section, which goes from 12.1 to 13.16. And this section of the book of Exodus is kind of woven between laws for keeping the Passover and the actual events themselves. And we're going to be concerned only with the actual events. We don't have time in this survey to go into the details and symbolism of the Passover itself. And chapter 12, verses 1 to 20, are another parenthesis. Something that the Lord has said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Now this doesn't happen that particular night, but it's something that happened earlier. And they're told that the Passover will be the beginning of months, the first month of the religious year, that from now on every month they're to celebrate the Passover and the rules are given for it. And this particular time they're to take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. And that's so that the angel of death, the avenger of blood, will see it and pass by, just as he passed by the blood on the legs of Moses' child. And they're to eat it in haste with the staff in hand, because God is going to go through and execute judgment on Egypt that night. Then there are rules for keeping the feast that follows it. And of course, they didn't keep the feast right off the bat because they were marching out of Egypt, but in years to come, they would have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verses 14 to 20 give rules for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, when we come to verse 21, we find the event itself, that Moses called for all the elders of Israel and told them to take lambs according to their families and slay the Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, that God would smite the Egyptians, and that this would be the night in which they would be delivered. And the people bowed low and worshipped. In verse 29, we find that about midnight the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, just as he had promised, and there was a great cry in Egypt, just as God had prophesied. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. In verse 31, and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord, as you have said. In other words, all your conditions are met. Both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, go and bless me also. If we were to look over to Deuteronomy 15, verse 18, we'll find that when the slave is set free and given his gifts, it will be a blessing to his master. And so Pharaoh still clings to some hope that now that he's finally going to do the right thing, he will get some blessing for it. But, of course, you and I know, being familiar with this, that Pharaoh is going to renege at the last minute. So, Pharaoh understands the law. He understands the rules. After all, Joseph had been there for a long time, and the Egyptians knew what the law of God was. The Egyptians urged the people, sending him out of the land in haste. They said, we are all dead. So, just as Sarah drove Hagar and Ishmael out, so the Egyptians are driving out the Israelites for fear of what will happen. And they got their gifts from the Egyptians in verse 35, and they left. Then we read about the departure. It says that they journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men, aside from their children, and a mixed multitude uh, went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. And since they didn't have time to bake their bread, it was unleavened. Then we have another remark about the chronology. It says... This is verses 40 to 42. The time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. It came about at the end of 430 years to the very day. And that seems to be the right translation, that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 
The very day of what? Well, Abraham had moved into Egyptian territory 430 years earlier. And that was when he came into the land of Canaan, back in Genesis chapter 12. And it seems that the day they left Egypt was, according to their chronological reckoning, the same day as the day Abraham had originally come in to the land of Canaan. Then we have more rules for the Passover in verses 43 to 51, uh, who may eat of it and who may not. Then additional rules for the Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, and on down to verse 16. And that closes out the passage on the Passover. And then we find their entrance out of Egypt and into the wilderness, which we'll look at next time. I'd like, in conclusion of this particular tape, very briefly to call your attention to the Exodus pattern. You have a chart that points to the Exodus pattern in Scripture and some of the occurrences of it that are listed here, times that God takes people out from one place or another. And let's just look at the section on basic elements and we will be reminded of the overall thing that's going on here that God is doing. First of all, we find a threat that drives people out of an Eden. And that's happened in the book of Genesis when the destruction of Sodom destroyed the land of Canaan so that Abraham had to move into the Philistine territory, which was actually Egyptian. And then later on that moved another stage when the wickedness of the Canaanites was so great that God's people moved into Goshen. Then we have an attack on Eve by the serpent who wishes to use her for his own seed. That happened in Exodus chapter 1, where Pharaoh determines to kill the boy babies, but save the girl babies so that they can be used to raise up men for his use. The serpent wants the girls for himself. Well, the next thing that you find as a basic element in the Exodus pattern is the use of deception to trick the serpent and guard the bride, and the Hebrew midwives did that. They deceived the serpent and protected God's bride by protecting the boy babies. And, of course, that program of killing off the boy babies didn't last very long. It was frustrated, and Pharaoh gave it up. We know that because there are loads of men around that come out of Egypt with Moses. Then we find that there are blessings that come upon the redeemed and curses upon the wicked, and, of course, the curses of the ten plagues. And simultaneous with those plagues is the giving of gifts to God's people. And so that works out. There's always miraculous intervention, and of course we've had plenty of that. There's a humiliation of false gods. We find that every time an exodus takes place, and of course we have it here preeminently with the Nile and the sun, but also Pharaoh himself as a god and the magicians. There is a departure with spoils, as we've seen, and then finally there is an installment in the Holy Land. And that, of course, is not going to come for another generation, but that's the end of the pattern. There are other elements. Enslavement is a very common aspect. We've seen that here. The people are enslaved. Plagues are a common aspect, and we've seen that again. Visions coming to the pagan Lord, we don't have that. This time we have Moses speaking, but we don't have any particular visions to Pharaoh, although Pharaoh's own counselors, again, tell him, what to do. And then we have the serpent trying to shift the blame to the righteous. And 
course, we do have that in this, in that Pharaoh always tries to put the blame on Moses and say, you're acting illegally, this is all your fault. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.